Good morning, everyone. Happy Wednesday. This is another episode of Out of Grief Comes Art. Um, your hosts are Hallie Williams, myself, and Elizabeth Copeland. And today we are on Zoom. We are recording this episode not only here, you know, our voices, but also on video so you guys can see it on YouTube later. My voice is a little horrendous today. I woke up with some crazy cold. It's not COVID. We took a test. We're okay, but maybe allergies. So if you're watching me on video, you might see me sucking down this huge, huge water bottle here. Um, but everyone be proud of me because I'm hydrating. Okay, so... And before we get too much further, I do want to thank our sponsor, one of our sponsors. We have a few great ones. And today is Humanities Washington. Humanity, this project has been made possible in part by funding from Humanities Washington and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Humanities Washington's open minds and bridges divides by creating spaces to explore different perspectives. Thank you so much for believing in our project and our podcast and supporting us today. All right. Today is a really cool episode because not only does Out of Grief come art, but Out of Grief comes activism. Um, we have a really special guest named Amy Rubin, and she's brought on as well a colleague, Bob Courtney. And they are personal friends. Well, Amy is a personal friend of Elizabeth's. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Okay, correct. Yeah. yeah, and Elizabeth, um, I remember Elizabeth said, oh my gosh, my friend Amy, I just talked to her. She's someone we should consider for the podcast. And I said, okay, why? Because that's always, Elizabeth and I, are, you know, are always back and forth like this. And she was like, well, she has really done some extraordinary work and she is a biker. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, um, Elizabeth, how do you know Amy? Well, actually, and Amy, please jump in there and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is going back to the early days of Grief Dialogues, when I was starting to look for scripts to short plays to be part of the Grief Dialogues uh, program, which is, for those of you who don't know, Grief Dialogues, the play, is comprised of six short plays yeah. and interwoven with poems, and these plays depict various scenarios about dying death and or grief and amy sent me a wonderful piece about her experience which we'll, we'll be talking to her about in just a second it's just really great and so we included her in our library of plays and we were moving forward now as everybody knows covid hit and so we haven't been able to perform mm -hmm. that particular one but mm -hmm. amy you are in that in our uh, and we're about to launch hopefully uh, the new, the newest edition of Grief Dialogues to play, and um, so hopefully we'll get Amy's show up in that capacity soon, within the next year anyway. But uh, so I met Amy through that, and we talked a lot. And Amy, you were living in New Orleans at the time, but then when we did a performance of Grief Dialogues in New York, and I want to say that was two thousand eighteen, seventeen yes, at the Georgia yeah, okay. Conference. At the Dramatist Guild Conference in New York City, Amy came, and we so we got to personally meet and and just stay connected. And I just love what you have done with the play, etc. So rather than me talking, Holly, I'm gonna hand it back to you, <laughs> and we'll hear all about it. I realize with all my rambling and my energy, I didn't say, hi, Amy, how are you? So how are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Good, and hi, Bob. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good. Thank you guys both for being on our podcast today and just continuing the conversation. Um, if there's anything that Elizabeth and I love, it's to talk and especially about grief 
and how to talk about it. So, Amy. And we'll, we'll explain why Bob's here in just a minute, too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, but okay. truly. <laughs> just to make sure. Yes, yes. We will totally explain why Bob is here. Um, Amy, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your grief story. And um, in that, actually, maybe you could also tell, tell everyone why Bob is here as well. You know, as you as you share right. about that. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack a little bit because, um, and we'll get when we get into about the art. Uh, I'll also tap into the grief story of my father passing away when I was 19 was my first experience with real grief. Yeah. Oh. And of course, I've written uh, a play, and I'm still editing that play uh, about about his his passing and my reconciliation with him as a father. Okay. Um, that, that's early grief to have when you're 19 and it was very sudden yeah. and, um, yeah. you know, uh, and grieving onward through years of, uh, unfortunately in my twenties, <clears throat> losing several friends and even someone I was dating. So then we continue experiencing different relationships of grief. Um, and then my mother, uh, passing away, which I have not written about, which probably will come much later, not, yeah. not prepared in 1999. But because of her passing, I discovered something that became my salvation besides my creative aspirations is Kundalini Yoga and meditation. Mm. And that is also a very creative process wow. to uh, become uh, steeped in, in this practice has literally saved me yeah. uh, and prepared me, as I've been told, for what was to become the worst tragedy and the worst grief. And that was in uh, on October 14, 2007, when my husband Jim and I were on our motorcycle and uh, we were crashed by a cager, a person in a car who pulled out and T-boned us on Highway 61 in Sorrento, Louisiana. And that was the the end of my life as I knew it, completely the end of my life. I was on the bike with him. So unlike other, some other motorcycle widows, uh, I was a participant. So there was, there still is healing to to be uh had but um almost 15 years out now uh i've written very different renditions of the same play called always and forever jim yeah and elizabeth has accepted the 10 minute rendition in her grief dialogues library to be performed uh and now i'm i come to bob so bob bob and i met because of my tragedy and bob Bob filmed the last full day of Jim and I alive on the uh, Road Glide ride sponsored by Harley Davidson of Baton Rouge wow. for his TV show, L.A. Rider, okay. which is a Louisiana-based show, and he produces it. So he has given me the gift of always having my husband say his name. I have his voice. I have him and I on a motorcycle. I have the still pictures, and I have such gratitude that, that that was filmed the day before. It's very kind of eerie and ominous, but it's turned out to be an absolute blessing that I can have that. So Bob and I kept uh, a relationship going through motorcycle awareness campaign and uh, legislative activism and motorcycle safety and awareness activism. Mm. And then last year, Bob did even better for me when I asked him to go to my late husband's grave on the anniversary, the secular anniversary of his death, okay. because 
I'm no longer in Louisiana and I can't do it. And Bob filmed um, a ritual for me and for others to see, which is saying Kaddish at my late husband's grave because we're Jewish and reading the poem that is etched in the back of the gravestone that I had written for Jim that he carried with him in his truck forever in our lives and um now uh bob is uh, also one of these threads of people in louisiana that i can't lose lose touch with because of our connection through motorcycle riding and his sensitivities to me and probably many other people who have uh grief in their life because of the tragedies of motorcycles being crashed by cagers so that's why Bob is here as a support and he has a lot to offer in that he creates art out of grief in his own personal endeavors and is privy to this particular type of grief, which is, in my estimation, uh, different than prepared grief, illness grief, because this is instantaneous, tragic, circumstantial grief that is senseless. Mm. Bob, do you have you done this for other for others as well? I mean, you have told us just right before our call, you were like, I have seen a lot of grief when it comes to the motorcycle world. Um, and but you also do film. So is this is this um, something that you've started doing or have you just done it for Amy once or? Well, um, what I do, what the television show does, and now I am serving as the president of MAC, the Motorcycle Awareness mm-hmm. Campaign, I see and deal with a lot of people who've gone through the same tragedy yeah. that Amy has gone through. And one of the things that we do, we tell their story on our television show. Right. And uh, and that is a part of, of their grief experience. It gives them an opportunity to verbalize how they're feeling, how this makes them feel. And at the same time, it works toward the activism of what we're trying to do with the motorcycle awareness campaign. So yes, uh, with what I've done for Amy is probably a bit more personal, like going to the grave, but Amy's a, a dear friend. We were there with her. We met her the first time the day before her tragedy, and we've stayed close and grown closer over the years as a result of that. Hmm. And so when she said she couldn't be there, uh, one of our, um, one of our, uh, uh, associates with Mac uh, also happens to be Jewish, so we we had a little Jewish ceremony at the gravesite, laid some stones on the on the uh, headstone, and uh, filmed it. And we used it on our television show, and we also sent a copy to Amy. Wow, okay. uh, fabulous! Yeah, really wow. Yeah, it's so when you say motorcycle awareness. What does that mean? Obviously, I'm aware that that's a motorcycle over there, but what, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, we, we wish you were more aware because in many cases, uh, in fact, in, in almost every crash when a motorist runs into a motorcycle, the first thing they say is, I didn't see the motorcycle. And, yeah. uh, and so that's the awareness part. We're trying to make people aware of motorcycles on the highway they're right to the highway and the fact that they're there and uh, there's there's some problems with people actually seeing us we're smaller uh you know it's it's they're not looking for us and we 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 preach something called uh active uh viewing you have to actively be watching actively be looking for something or you might not see it so motorcycle awareness campaign actually was born out of a, a personal grief 
And uh, Warren Broussard, who was the founder of the Motorcycle Awareness Campaign, who originally went to Amy after her crash, he formed the organization with a few other friends after they lost a number of their friends in motorcycle crashes. So their activism came out of that grief and those crashes. And over the years, what we've tried to do are two things. Number one, help to make motorcyclists, I mean, help to make motorists uh, aware of motorcycles. Also to talk to motorcyclists about safety and actively avoiding crashes. Uh And then we've provided an opportunity for people who have suffered through these tragedies to have a place to go to talk about what has happened to them. So that's kind of what we've been doing. Oh, wow. I mean, okay, where do our listeners, I'm going to link it, of course, in our information, but where do our listeners go if they were wanting to get more information and and be involved? Could you give a plug uh, real quick? The the website is uh, macorg com macorg.com okay macorg.com everyone go That's ahead correct. if you're not driving go ahead and type that in um during our conversation if you are driving please wait please um please, <laughs> please. um okay so this is fascinating because amy you had just mentioned that this isn't like a planned grief um which okay a planned grief or an illness grief this is an instantaneous tragedy and that is a whole different type of grief. I mean, and, I, and I'm and i here, I'm going to be the first one to say, I think that there's like 10 million different breeds of grief. I really think there are. But um, this one is probably the one that I'm the most scared of. I'm a mom and a wife. And, um, you know, sometimes when the kids are in bed, my husband will be like, okay, well, we, we have... Um, somebody who can watch our kids for us who lives with us but he'll be like let's run to the gas station real quick and get some ice cream or something right like just at the end of the street and i will have that panic just in the back of my head as a mom and a wife like what if something happened to to us right like just for the two seconds that we left and amy your story like just listening to it brings me almost to the brink of tears like that lump in my throat because your husband and you were just going out for a ride and the world changed and like you said, life as you knew it ended. Um, Completely shattered. But I'm gonna I'm gonna add on to that what yeah. you what you just said because in my play, yeah, in this oh that's where I was going. Play, so good. But the whole play isn't written. It's actually going to become a film. Mm. I'm confident that it is film material because of okay. all of the spokes attached to the hub of what this story is. That Bob knows some of that. The political. All of this, uh, there's so yeah. many segues into different aspects of what happened, why it happened, how it happened. Right. And it's um, it's quite an intense story now that I'm uh, removed somewhat by years from it, but still sitting in the nucleus of it. But when wow. when Jim and I got on, um, did that road glide ride, that was for him. That was his ride. He wanted to do it. He had newly purchased that bike in May, uh-huh. and the ride was in July. Okay. And I I didn't like that bike. That bike didn't like me. He had changed the seat for me because it, I didn't have a comfortable passenger seat. And he was supposed to change the 
the footboards into pegs because I like to move my ankle up and down more freely. We had two other bikes of which one of them we were married on was a Honda 1100 Shadow and the other bike I bought him as a uh, as a uh, he got divorced from his first wife present so I bought him the Buell S2T Thunderbolt 1996 that he was supposed to restore but I never rode on that bike it was a one passenger bike. Okay. But we um we went on this bike, he, this ride. He's it was a very private person. It was it was kind of out of his comfort zone to be filmed, to tell you the truth. But he wanted to be on the ride because it was a road glide, and he loved his bike. And then the next day was my ride. That was the ride to take me down to Homa, Louisiana, to a water blessing with the yogis, the other friends of mine yeah. in my yoga community. Okay. And he was riding me down, and so we got up five o'clock in the morning on Sunday after a beautiful ride on Saturday to go on this ride and things weren't working out. And the first thing that didn't work out and it's in my play is that when we got to the stop sign at the top of our little street, yeah. the things in my mind were what would happen if, what would happen if, what would happen uh -huh. if. And I sat on that bike and uh -huh. I didn't say a word to him uh -huh. about what would happen if, because we had four kids together. We were like a Brady bunch minus two, yeah. two of his, two of mine. So that whole scenario came through my head. So you and then yeah, I lived you know what I'm talking the what about. Then I'm living what would happen if, <sighs> and it's very eerie. Like all of the stuff that happened was was destined to happen for me to get to the point where I can do what I do now and mm. push out all of these types of. Um, avenues for other people like kundalini yoga really yeah. and the motorcycle widows that came to me and talked to me i'm not sure if bob was privy to how many people i actually warren was sending me to talk to who were motorcycle widows yeah because we had to connect we had to heal together we have to if you're further along a path or further along the road yeah. you have to help who is behind you yeah. and so um you know that what would what would happen if scenario was horrible it's horrible to live and nobody wants to be in my motorcycle riding boots is what i used to say nobody wants to be in this but i'm one of the two percent of the people that survived this type of a crash and and so i have to do good with it i have to honor my late husband i have to honor his memory and i have to honor what's happened in order to continue my life. I can't ignore it. It's just like Elizabeth, you can't ignore when grief is telling you, you've got to do something for others. And that's what you're doing with all of it. And so people, people need to um, understand that having the thought in your head doesn't make it happen. But being aware that it could potentially happen every time you throw your leg over that motorcycle, it could happen. It's never going to happen to me. It's never going to happen to me. Right. It happens. And right. and not that you want to doomsday yourself all the time about every time you go out. But right. it's a very hard thing for motorcycle riders to contend with. And it's, it's all so, personal to I, all of us. Right. And um, and I always I always say this, whether it's motorcycle or whatever, about being kind and saying the sharing the love you have for people. Because you can walk outside and get hit by a Mack truck. Or like it happened to a friend of mine the other day, he was coming home from rehearsal as an actor and he had a heart attack in the cab and died. You just, you, you know, we need to live, I personally, I'm not gonna say we, I personally need to live my life as if something could happen, not in fear, but in love. 
Um, I am very curious, Amy, why you chose to write a play once the you, know, you experience this tragedy. Uh, why a play? Why not a novel or right. some I, other I, form I, of creativity? I've been writing a novel for the life of me. I did write poetry. My degree was in poetry at the U, at University of New Orleans. When I met Jim, I was finishing off my undergraduate and I was going into my MFA, but I had always written plays because my whole life was in the theater. I spent 26 years in technical and production theater. So naturally I'm going to write theater, but I did write articles first and out of activism, yeah. I wrote two articles for Thunder Roads magazine. Remember Thunder Roads, Bob? I do. Yes. Yeah. So I, so I wrote two articles for them and I wrote two articles for spirit voyage, which is a, a, a yoga online yoga magazine oh. and all dealing with the the transformation of what what's happening if and um and with uh, thunder roads it was for activism and then i did a lot of speaking engagements with harley davidson and whoever wanted to listen to me and i would go and i'd talk on behalf of motorcycle awareness and tell my story and tell jim's story um so that was that was the first thing i'm journaling I journaled as soon as I could write my hands were broken in the crash so I couldn't write so as soon as I could write I I hand wrote my journals in fact this morning I was looking at them and I went and looked at this the mm -hmm. DVD from that ride that Bob had made so um oh I want to ask started the play I want to ask because we talked to a lot of writers and playwrights and the common theme is that everyone's like, I journal, I journal. Okay, so this is cool. But now my new question for all of you is, do you go back and read your journals? Or do you, you did this morning, but typically, do, do you revisit them? Or do you just close them and that's, it's out of you? No, no, no. We, I, I've revisited many times because I also have all the documents of everything that happened. I mean, my case was huge. Mm -hmm. It was in the newspapers. Um, I, I, I was, I was, uh, I was doing all the research in order to actually do the legal of my own. I was on my own paralegal in a lot of respects to get some justice. And what I found out what there was no justice, there was only just law. And so I, I, I was already playwright. I've been writing about a lot of dead people. In fact, Elizabeth, everybody in my place. Uh, all research from New Orleans, Louisiana, my area of expertise is the story of a district of uh, prostitution from 1897 to 1917. And it's all the dead people who have spoken back to me with their stories that I, yeah. I write. Um, so I'm used to researching and what I did was I reread my journals because yeah. and the cards that Jim gave me, the, the letters he wrote me, everything like that is in my play because that that's the life that he lived and I lived and it had to come out uh, the truest form that I could. I tried to get my, my grief recovery centers transcripts. I went for two and a half years to the grief recovery center in Baton Rouge for therapy with a fabulous therapist. And unfortunately, by the time I got back in touch with them, they had destroyed the records or the records were destroyed no. through hurricanes and, and wow. tragedy Perfect. and so I couldn't get my records um, they were no longer available but all of the documents and all of everything that you have including your journal has to be 
your materials for your writing, if you're writing personal narrative, memoirish type of plays, it has to be. Mm-hmm. And how did you, in your process, can you describe a little bit about your how you wrote the play and, and maybe even a little bit of the feelings? I mean, um, I'm, I've just recently finished a play that I've been working on for seven years, and it's a composite of three deaths, but I obviously think of those people, and sometimes I get overwhelmed with it because I am remembering these loved ones. How, what was your process for writing the play and the, your feelings that you carried forward? Well, for, for the play, the play that I gave you, mm-hmm. um, which I did a couple Sorry, for our listeners, which play was that? That's that's Always and Forever Jam. Okay, yeah. So the play that's in Elizabeth's library of plays, I did a couple of rewrites pertaining to um, what, after uh, Wesley and you read it, what feedback I got. Yeah. So I was very happy to get that dramaturgy going. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, but the premise of that play was I went to see David Ireland's play at um, in New York, uh, and it was Cypress Avenue, and the whole premise oh. of being in the psychiatrist or psychologist's office, that hit me, and I said, you know, I spent two and a half years in grief recovery, I need to write as if I'm sitting there, and then having having uh, the conversation with the psychologist that I worked with, without his notes, I didn't have his notes, so that's how I, I decided to uh, formulate that. Mm. But my father's, the 55 days that I wrote for my father was totally different. I formulated it on his death in the hospital when he was dying, what he was thinking of me in the different years of my life with him and what I was thinking about him and me at the same time. So I'm cutting timelines and I'm really working on that to be an effective technique. So it's not a linear play. so that's how I'm doing that one, and I've still got a lot of work to do editing that. But it um, takes place in the hospital. Um, he he passed away in 1981 from an unknown disease, which later we discovered that he was given HIV blood and he had full blown AIDS. In 55 days, they killed him in the hospital. Oh my goodness! From patients oh. at 50 yeah. years old. <laughs> oh. Yeah, who would have thunk it, right? Oh my gosh. So, Coming to terms with 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 this, his death and my my terrible relationship with him just before he died. Right. So I had to whittle down when I had a good relationship, when it started to get right. not so good, and then later on having that bad relationship. But he died, and then me as myself now going back into uh, the relationship. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've done, I, so there's different ways of formulating how you want to tell your story. It has to be theatrical. It has to be dramatized. It's not, it's not writing um, a lecture, mm, you know, no, so I find that creative avenue. Right. So do you, can you, doing. would you give us the, just the synopsis, quick synopsis of Always and Forever, Jim? The synopsis of, of the entire play or of the play you, yeah your, your elevator speech what when someone says what's this play about what, how, what do you say uh do you want me to read the play is about okay. a grieving motorcycle widow pouring out her heart to the only person that could really hear her 
and the late husband being present in the situation without her knowledge because Jim is there all the time in the sessions, having the sessions with me. Um, he's wow. he's there in the play. That's powerful. Um, I, I, don't, I don't I don't really have a, a, a better synopsis uh, off off the cuff right now. No, I think that's but great. But the entire play, the entire play that will become a film, because I'm trying to get a treatment done right now. I'm in in uh, early stages of talking to someone in the film industry who's a screenplay writer mm -hmm. to get a treatment done. Is that this play is like the uh, is a cut between. The three billboards in Ebbing, Missouri, because we had the billboard before the three billboards had a billboard. Because remember, Bob, I had a billboard. Yes, you did. I yes. did. My motorcycle awareness campaign had a billboard before the three billboards were even a thing. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I went to see the three billboards, I went, you know what? I All right, guys, we are back. We just dropped off for two seconds, just like two seconds. So go right back and say what you were saying. We have un we've unpaused. Um, I was Thank saying you. how uh, motorcycle awareness campaign we had the billboard. So my my big picture play slash film yes. is a treatment between the three billboards of Ebbing, Missouri, and Aaron Brockovich. That is my story. It is yeah. so involved, and it, it has to be told for right. for so many reasons. And the motorcycle community is is told in negative or seen in negative light a lot of the time you know they're just bikers where we're outlaws we're we're there oh. to rape and pillage your towns all of this stuff which we laugh at. that's right? terrible <laughs> i think bikers are so cool uh, I no tattoos either i have tattoos my too tattoo is for my late husband I'm actually wearing my vest, which is always and forever Jim the patch from his memorial ride. Yes. But um, wow. you know, and my Mac patch is on the back of the vest too, still. But it's 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 that a story of a man who is uh, is a husband, a father, a friend, a son, a brother. Yep. Who is just he's a regular guy who rides a motorcycle instead of a car, and he gets killed and nothing's done. Mm. No one is paying for it. Can I interject something here? Absolutely. Because we're kind of talking around it, and I think it's important. Uh, what, what we're dealing with in these motorcycle crashes is the fact that the law does not properly give uh, an outcome that, that puts any, any end to the story. In other words, in, in Amy's case, someone deliberately, well, not deliberately, but pulled it directly into their path mm -hmm. and killed Jim and injured Amy. And that person was the mayor of a small town. That person was never indicted. That person was never charged with anything serious. And in most cases, people who take the lives of motorcyclists get nothing more than a slap on the wrist. They rarely go to jail. They rarely are fined very much. And the law just does not treat the death of a motorcyclist the same way with, yeah. with someone who's murdered or killed accidentally. So it's and, and so this when people are trying to make sense out of this instant tragedy, and that's what it is, as we've talked about already, when they're trying to make sense out of it, at least they're looking for some kind of outcome that makes them feel that justice has been done right. and it has not been done and it is rarely done. So this adds another component. And this is the thing that Amy went through. This is why she was 
fighting to try to find some justice in all of that. Isn't that right, Amy? Absolutely. And and I came to the point where um, I, I realized through my research and I studied the data of motorcycle crash fatalities and injuries in the state of Louisiana in comparison to other states and what was being done and what the laws were and got involved with the, uh, remember Imri Sauter, the, he was the government affairs specialist with AMA, American Motorcycle Association, and he was helping us. In fact, he wrote an article that went into the AMA, a national magazine, about the one law that we got changed. And But then and once you get the law changed and you do that successfully, it has to be incorporated into everyday uh, police use, utilizing the law. It has to be used, and it's not mm. being used. That yeah. I haven't found they have one to implement it. only time that they use law against people that cause these types of crashes, fatalities and injuries, is when it has to do with a DUI or a DWI, depending on what state you're in. That's the only time they're going to try to really charge someone. In my case, though, and Bob can concur, that the corruption in Louisiana, politically, because she was the mayor, trickled down to the attorney general himself leading the grand jury to a no true bill. Wow. So there, the, the, the charges were there, but they were not adequate enough. And finding negligence mm. is like finding that, that, that needle in the haystack. And I found the negligence, but he wouldn't accept it because he didn't want it to happen. He made it go away. Right. He was corrupt as well. And so were other people. The whole scenario of how it transpired from the moment of the crash was corrupt. And these are things that I believe not only make for a good story, I hate to have to say it, but it does make for a good story, but have to be brought to to uh, t- the attention of the, of the public. Because I'm not the only one that this has happened to. I'm sure there's others, but mine is really corrupt. Um, I mean, and we can't really go into the ins and outs, but but I have found out information that when I brought it to the FBI themselves, they apologized to me and said that they couldn't go any further. And I said, they dotted their I's and crossed their T's, didn't they? And the FBI agent said, yes, and I'm really so sorry that I can't go any further. Mm-hmm. Now that's They've quite done a statement for an FBI agent yeah. who has looked at my case to say, he knows that there's corruption, but he can't go any further. They've done this before. They've done this before. They've perfected yep. their techniques. Yeah, that's really sad. This yeah. is, I mean, we could do a whole long series on using activism to create art. I love that. Um, I'm doing it in a smaller way on a different topic. Kudos to you, Amy and Bob, for what you're doing. And in the state, you know, there are states where it's easier to pull something off than yep. others. Louisiana isn't one of them. Um, you know, my neighbor was, was murdered by the police and their family was oh. able after a long time, but were able to get a, a, a law passed that required police officers to get training in mental health. But we live in Washington state. So mm. those things happen here. So my gosh, what you went through, uh, and are going through to make it happen in Louisiana is just astounding. Thank you so much uh, for doing that. It's really amazing. And uh, I definitely would like to continue this conversation as you move forward with developing your your film. 
the I will say having taken a play script I wrote and turning it into a screenplay that's an art in and of itself oh yeah um so so I want to say and so to sort of wrap up this particular discussion and, and I can direct it uh both of you if if so we have our readers and 99% of the time they I mean readers and listeners 99% of the time they're dealing with some grief and they're looking for ways to channel those those feelings and emotions and we're we say do it through art you know but that's not always that's easier said than done especially if you don't have any artistic inclination to begin with um, so what we ask our our guests if you could make a, a recommendation to someone who's going through a tragedy maybe an accidental or not so accidental but maybe a sudden death what would you might what might you suggest that they think of first if they want to try some sort of art to help find and another whole side i'd love to do a podcast on finding meaning because you really that's what i'm hearing you're finding meaning from within your art for what's good but what kind of recommendations would you suggest bob you're thinking oh. I, I am i think that what happens often i don't I, and and does seem to help a lot of people is exactly what Amy did was uh, activism, getting involved, mm -hmm. finding out what is happening to other people, discovering that you're not alone, uh, discovering that other people have been through this same sort of thing. How can you come together? And what is it that you can do? In our organization, in the Motorcycle Awareness Campaign, mm -hmm. we have uh, ways for people to become involved, to, um, uh, to, to deal with this. And I think it helps them with the, the process. Ultimately, as in Amy's case, it can turn into art or it can be channeled into other things. But I think activism um, and getting involved and learning more about what happened to you and how it's happened to others and trying to find a solution to see if you can make that a little different. If you can cut down on the number of people that this happens to. 138 people lost their lives on Louisiana highways last year in Louisiana on motorcycles. Wow. And the number it continued to go up and um and that's just one highway right try to get them to go the other way mm -hmm. yeah that's great yeah um, what did you say hallie i said well that number is just one highway right one state one state one state, one state. okay louisiana okay yeah. i mean wow I mean, yeah. I, th I think what you what guys are it? saying is is so spot on. The activism is kind of just another way of saying, have a conversation, talk about it, you know, and that's totally our thing here on the podcast is right. Like we want people to talk about grief and death and these situations and then, OK, let's do something with that energy. Right. And for us, it's art. And for you guys, you're like, OK, let's do something with that energy. Let's like create awareness let's let's talk about the laws let's try to transform the laws um i my hat is off to you guys and i would love to get involved as well so thanks. can i add one more thing to on top of what bob said before we close off i yeah. have to acknowledge i'm not sure if you know him bob or knew of him and i don't know what happened to him but i think he passed away bruce arnold he was he was the um the the most active activist that I got had the pleasure of meeting in the motorcycle world and hardcore rider. He was, yeah. um, he rode across the country on these uh, iron butt rides, they called them. Because I never got <laughs> off the bike for like, oh, oh know. my gosh. <laughs> and I had the pleasure of meeting him and he allowed me 
to have his, at that time it was his, um, well, you call it a blog now, but it wasn't. It was, he wrote an article constantly. Okay. It was an activism article. And he allowed me to write for him. And he gave me tips on how to do what I do. And he coined a phrase to me that will forever be important in everything I do. There is a difference between activism and slacktivism. Oh. Being an activist, not a slacktivist. I love it. So don't pacify. So if I've talked to other widows, motorcycle widows, and again, they weren't on the bike, but that doesn't negate how they're feeling. Thank God they weren't on the bike because then they'd have to deal with what I've been dealing with, with being a disabled person, but not disabled in the way you think, you know, physically. Physically, I'm very challenged because of the injuries. But this idea of don't be a slacktivist, and activism lends to creativity in other than artistic ways. You're still creative. We were always creative in our meetings. Our meetings were this camaraderie of so many people oh. for one purpose. And it was gave me a community that understood who I was. And this is important for anybody who becomes widowed tragically for to go and seek some help from a grief recovery place, to have group sessions, to journal, to be with other people who know and accept and you feel safe purging to them, discussing with them. You've got to do that because you cannot alienate yourself. No. And I am so grateful to, to Mac. Warren Broussard didn't need to come to the hospital to see me. I didn't even know who he was. Right. He didn't have to invite me to a meeting. He didn't have to uphold my story so tenderly that I could talk about it. He brought this out because I, I'm always been backstage my whole life in the theater. I was never on stage except if I was leading the, you know, the lighting cues. I was, I was never on stage. And he allowed me to have a platform by mm. which I could then create my, my story from inside but bring it outside. And it, it really helps to have people in your corner who, yeah. who are of likened hearts and minds. I'm so supporting. if anybody is experiencing grief, don't do it alone. Right. Find oh, your perfect. People. Yes. Find your people. Excellent. Excellent way to end the, the podcast. Yeah. Find your people. That is so important. Is. And also, I do want to, I'm serious about this, I do want to have an episode, and I'd love to have you guys back, where um, where. It's finding meaning, and um, David Kessler, who works with Elizabeth Kubler Ross, that's his big, his newest book is on finding meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to talk more because you really, you really shown a perfect example how you can, um, through activism, can definitely pull in meaning to your tragic loss. So, thank you so much, Amy and Bob. This thank has really you. been amazing to share, thank having you. share your journey thank with you. us. Uh, uh, and we will, and, and Hallie will do this, obviously, but we'll put all the links to the motorcycle uh, organization, Bob, and, and really put it out there. It's great. My husband's a cyclist, so I know about that invisible piece. So thank you. You are not invisible to us. You're wonderful. Thank you. Keep it up. Um, and Hallie, I'll let you have the closing words. Thank you again, Amy and Bob, for being here. And that was another episode of Out of Grief Comes Art, the podcast with your hosts, Hallie and Elizabeth. Thanks to Amy and Bob for being here again. We hope you have a wonderful Wednesday. Drive safe today. Make sure that you, um, now that we've talked about motorcycles, please just take a little extra time on the road today to check your surroundings, your blind spots. Um, 
anything that we can do to promote just the extra safety and awareness. Be present, be in the moment, and do something artsy today. Thanks, guys.